This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly and their dog Ninja. Hey everybody, I'm Adam. And I'm Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. We want to invite you out to see us, Hillbilly Horror Stories, EVP Mediums, and Macabre Melts at our live event in Nashville on October 20th. This paranormal event is at the perfect location, Hell Dark Aesthetics, better known as... Hell Nashville. Where you can buy books on witchcraft, Aleister Crowley, or maybe you just want to buy an animal skull or a bundle of sage, maybe some tarot cards, or a Ouija board. Showtime is 7 p.m. till 11 p.m. All ages are welcome, and tickets are only $10. Now, you can get full access to all of us for just $10. Every ticket is a VIP ticket. And EVP Mediums will be performing a spirit box session. Get your tickets from hillbillyhorrorstories.com or graveyardpodcast.com. Good evening, guys, and welcome to episode 113, Lucky 113 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Hope you guys had a great weekend. We had a fabulous one. We did. It's our anniversary today as we record, so we uh, celebrated by going to the Kentucky football victory over South Carolina. Go Cats. That's right. Go Cats. Proud of them. And then we went and spent the night in a hotel in a little city that's every bit of 30 minutes from our house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. actually, what is about 30 minutes, <laughs> yeah. right? Shaker but, Village. Yeah, we did that because we were going to Shaker Village today, which is a really cool place if you've never been. But if you're in the state of Kentucky or anywhere close, it's worth kind of checking out. Yeah, and it's so much fun for the kids. The kids, I can't wait to take the grandkids back there because there's a lot of fun things for them to do, and it was really interesting. But the, just a, uh, some quick history so you'll know, Shakers were kind of in the line of like, when I think of Shakers, like Puritans and mm -hmm. the Amish, and uh, this goes all the way back to, uh, you know, like the early 1800s. But they moved there and they set up their own little community. And at one point they had over 400 people. But they were a religious group that was a little different than most. And, and what I liked about the stories we heard today is they were equal by all aspects. Absolutely. Uh, they were in the, the early 1800s, and they had women that they looked at as complete equals. They mm -hmm. were able to uh, take leadership roles with, right. within them. And one of their, the longest leaders they had was a woman, mm -hmm. which was kind of unheard of. This was 100 years before women were even able to vote. Yeah. They had African-Americans that lived there side by side as equals. Uh, and this was during the time when slavery was going on. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. And we found out today that at one time they had uh, what they say over 100 buildings. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There on site. As part of their little commune, I guess you could say. And today, there's still over 30. I think they said there was 34, maybe. Yeah. And that's the biggest collection of homes from the 1800s uh, anywhere in the United States. Yeah. And you can tell because they're really different and cool looking, for sure. So it's been taken over. Uh, you know, they, they kind of went away. 
uh, as time went on back in the 20s and the 30s. But they uh, it was taken over by some individuals that try to preserve as much as possible. Now you can go out there and they've got a bunch of animals and farms and you can see, like we were seeing today, how bees make honey and we were watching them squeeze apple cider and make molasses and oh, all yeah, that stuff and, so good. and like a lot of fun stuff for the kids like she was saying but it was a really cool learning experience and yeah. hay rides and yeah. stuff like that but they also do a spirit walk uh-huh. on uh, this time of year and we're going to go up there probably for one of those it's um but it's a really cool place so if you're anywhere near it it's worth coming out and spending a day yeah it was a beautiful day for it too yeah it was a really nice day so let's get into the nuts and bolts as usual we're going to do the uh, the iTunes and the Patreons in the middle of the show. We've also got, because um, this is going to be a very kind of a dark show, but to lighten stuff up at the end, we're going to have Angel Mays. She's uh, the, one of the hosts from Color Me Dead, and she lives 15 minutes from Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. And Skinwalker has by far been our most listened to episode. Thank you guys for that oh and gosh. spreading the word. Ooh, thank you so much. I mean, it was. it's not even close. It's just yeah, blown away our numbers. pretty amazing. And... I thought it would be cool to have her on because she's had some experiences from right there. Uh-huh. So she's going to come on and we'll just talk a little bit about Skinwalker Ranch at the end of this show. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, let's jump right into uh, thanking all of our military and our civil servants all over the world, no matter which country we represent. Thank you so much for what you do every day. God bless you guys. I know you've had a lot going on these days, but we're praying for you and we appreciate you guys very, very much. Stay safe. And then also, uh, as usual we want to tell everybody that if they're going through a rough time they're going through a rough patch in life and they need to talk to somebody we're available the people in our group on facebook are available and you've got friends and family members that are available even though you may not think that they are don't hesitate to grab somebody and just say hey i've got something i need to talk about i think you'll be surprised at how many people that you wouldn't even think would care would gladly just give you as much time as you need to just to talk about what's going on in your life. Yes, that's true. And of course, Don't give we're up, available. Guys. Mm-hmm. If you need to talk to someone outside of your family or you don't feel like you've got any family, some people just don't have a very close circle of people. And I understand that. There's always the suicide hotline, 1 800 273 8255. And if you're more of a texter, 741 741. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about tonight's show. I want to start off with something that we've never done on our show, and uh, we've probably had a few times where we probably should have, but this time tonight I felt it was a little more crucial. I want to start off with a disclaimer that says that tonight's story is extremely disturbing, and there are going to be some parts in it that have some graphic detail that I would probably not use, but it's pertinent to the story. So with that being said, if the death of children or graphic details of that situation are something that you don't want to listen to, uh, I could understand if you skip this episode. It's um, probably the most detailed episode we've done. I think it's uh, the most disturbing, even though we've, like I said, we've done some disturbing stuff, especially when you talk about like the LaLaurie Mansion and uh, the mistreatment of some slaves and, and mistreatment of of people at some of these, uh, like the Monte Cristo in Australia, of uh, handicapped people in the mental hospitals and and all that. But uh, this one, to me, just is a little more of um, pulling on the heartstrings, I guess we'll say. So I just thought it would be a little necessary to let people know that if you know if this disturbs you, it might be one to skip. We don't like you to skip shows, but I would definitely understand. And 
you have the okay to skip this one if i think uh, i want to skip it (laughs) we talked about this a little bit between you and i but this is why we don't do true crime. And, and this is more of a true crime story. And the reason we're doing this tonight is there is a uh, Satanism aspect to it. And, you know, if we do true crime, there's usually some kind of a creepy aspect or a Satanism aspect or a cult or something. And that's why we're doing this story. But I felt it was one that probably needed to be told, especially with some, I'm not going to say it's new because this goes back a couple of years, but it's it's turned of events uh, for this case that I hadn't heard until recently, and which is what wanted me to go ahead and jump on and do this show Uh, a lot of twists and turns on it and like i said it's just flat out disturbing and it's the like i said the reason that i don't like to do true crime because it's been stuck in my head all week long and the the paranormal stories don't do that to me but this one and some of the true crime stories when you just see let's be honest with you we talk about ghosts and we talk about you know things that go bump in the night and cryptids and all that there's nothing out there that's more horrifying than people. Absolutely. So, well, are you ready? I think. And I got to say this, too. We've got two sponsors on tonight's show, which we normally only have one, but we've got two. And uh, this is probably, you know, a tough show to fit in, fit in the sponsors, but they pay for the ads, and we, um, we're obligated to run them. So we've tried to be as discreet as we could and and to make it fit into the show as best we could it's going to be tough so if somebody listens and thinks why would they stick that ad right there it's kind of not our choice yeah um i mean we're glad to have our sponsors and we and we we love them it's just a tough show to fit them in so um just just know that we tried to be as um good as we could about putting it in in the right place so we're going to go to may 5th 1993 we're in west memphis arkansas it's a very conservative god-fearing city it's in the bible belt everything in this town evolves around church mm-hmm. three eight-year-old cub scouts stevie branch michael moore and christopher byers went bike riding by all accounts at around 6 p.m that night they drove off to a little four-acre patch of woods that where a lot of the children would go and play in that area called robin hood hills it was the last time the three boys would be seen alive At 8 p.m. that night, John Mark Byers, which was the stepdad of Christopher Byers, called the West Memphis police to report that his son was missing. Byers and his wife had told police that they last saw their son working in the yard at around 5.30. Within the next 90 minutes, the other boy's parents would have also called the police. Dana Moore, Michael's mom, said that she saw her son bike riding with two friends at around 6 p.m., but he never made it back for dinner, which was unusual. Pamela Hobbs, Stevie's mom, said that she hadn't seen her son since he left for school. This was because she was at work. Mm-hmm. She worked the, uh, the second shift. News of the missing boys would spawn a search from friends and neighbors of Robin Hood Hills uh, Woods right there. The search turned up nothing, at least that night. The next morning, Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell announced that he would be heading up the search for the missing boys himself. In the early morning, juvenile officer Steve Jones spotted a black tennis shoe floating in the water of a ditch at the woods. He noticed that the tennis shoe had no laces. Fifteen minutes later, Sergeant Mike Allen of the West Memphis Police Department pulled out a naked body of a child out of the water and took him to the banks of the ditch. Within the hour, police recovered the other two bodies. All three bodies were naked 
and their wrists were tied to their ankles with shoelaces. The body of Christopher Byers was found with his crotch gone and his penis skinned. Gitchell walked to the edge of the woods where a crowd had gathered to report the news of the discovery of the boys. Upon hearing the news, Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, fell to his knees and wept. Soon after the boys were removed from the woods, rumors began circulating that the murder might be the work of Satan worshippers. These rumors only got stronger when Gitchell told reporters that his department was investigating the possibility that the murders were connected to cult activities. The police department assigned the case number to the murder file, number 93-05-0666. Two days later, Steve Jones, he's the one that found the first body, he interviewed a local teen named Damian Eccles. He was a 17-year-old high school dropout who had a history of psychiatric problems in his past. He wrote dark poetry, he dressed mostly in black, he had long hair, tattoos on his upper arm, and he was a self-described Wiccan. So the reason that they were at Dame Man's house to begin with is because the police asked a juvenile officer by the name of Jerry Driver for a list of about 10 names that, that he thought was a list of people that could do this. Mm-hmm. And Damien was at the top of his list. Now keep in mind that he was goth before that was a thing. Oh. We're talking back in 93. Now kids dress like that all the time. And right. It's no big deal. But in a little God-fearing town like this, that was just out of the norm. So this kind of made Damien an easy target, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's a little history on on Damien. In the last few years, Damien had threatened his former girlfriend and the guy she was with, as well as the girlfriend's dad. In 1992, Damien had uh, stayed with his mom for a little bit up in Oregon, and he had been admitted to a psychiatric ward and put on suicide watch. He then came back to Arkansas and kind of spent some time in a juvenile detention center before being transferred to a psychiatric hospital. The reason he was transferred from the uh, detention center to the hospital is because he tried to suck the blood out of another detainee. Oh, man. So after his release, he moved to West Memphis, where he met regularly with a social worker at the mental health facility. And she put in her her notes that she was writing that Damien told her that he might be another Charles Manson or Ted Bundy eventually. You can kind of see why they were initially yeah. had this guy on the short list. Yeah. So that's what made Jerry Driver, you know, put him at that list. So police questioned Damien three separate times from May 7th to May 10th. He said he had never heard of the three boys and that the person that committed the murders was obviously sick. He also said that he spent the night of the 5th at home with his mom and talking to two different girls on the phone. Lieutenant James Sudbury had in his notes that Damien said that it was probably one of the locals and that he probably wouldn't run. He noted that Damien liked to read Stephen King books and had evil tattooed across his knuckles. You know, like each finger had an E and then a V oh. and a... Damien took he a... said across his nose. Knuckles. Oh, I was going to have... Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, knuckles. That would be a... Um, that would really be a good dead giveaway. Yeah. It'd be like seriously. the nose in front of your face. Mm-hmm. Damien took a polygraph and failed. Police had two other subjects. Both of them were on the top 10 list as well. So Jerry Driver had given them pretty much the blueprint for what they were using. And both of these suspects were friends of Damien. The first was Jason Baldwin. He also had evil tattooed across his knuckles. 
Now, like Damien, Jason also denied any involvement in the murders. Detectives on the case thought otherwise. Investigators might have uh, stalled, though, in this effort if it wasn't for the work of a waitress named Vicki Hutchison. Vicki told police that she thought the killings were cult-related and it was um, she was willing to play detective on this. Okay, She had a neighbor, 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly, and he would sometimes babysit for uh, her children and mower lawn, stuff like that. Well, Jesse only had an IQ in the 70s, which mentally put him at the equivalent level of a five-year-old. Mm. Vicky said that Jesse had told her that Damien drank blood and stuff. Wow. So she got the blessing from police department to go ahead and work her magic. And what she did was she told Jesse that she would love to go out with Damien. Jesse then brought Damien over to her house. And Vicky came up with... Uh, Quite a story, we'll say, on May 19th. Now, she says that Damien drove her and Jesse in a red Escort, which was odd because Damien didn't drive and didn't have a car. She drove them in a, in a red Escort, and they went to this gathering of witches in a field just outside of town. She said there uh, she met 10 to 15 young people, all of which had their face painted black, and they started stripping off all their clothes and touching each other. She then said that all the participants there had names like Spider and Snake and Lucifer. So according to her, she was offended by this activity. She asked Damien to drive her home, which he did. And he left Jesse, Miss Kelly there at the, uh, at the events mm-hmm. partaking. In late May, Vicky and her son... Eight-year-old son, uh, Aaron, met with detectives again. Now, while Vicky told her story about the witches, Aaron, her eight-year-old son, told detectives that he and the three murdered boys used to visit Robin Hood Woods all the time. Mm-hmm. On one of those visits, they saw five men sitting in a circle, chanting and doing what men and ladies do. On June 2nd, Vicky took a polygraph t- uh, test, and based on the polygraph results, it was determined that she was telling the truth. So they pick up Jesse and Miss Kelly for questioning at 9 a.m. the next day. They tell him that there's a $35,000 reward for info that helps solve the case. And they said that his family would be eligible if he helped for that reward. Oh, okay. They even went as far as to talk about what type of truck he could get mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Keep in mind, this is a 17-year-old with the mentality of a 5-year-old. All right. They take in Jesse and do a, a polygraph interview with him, and he initially denies any participation in any kind of satanic rituals or the murders. Detective Durham tells another officer that Jesse is lying his ass off mm-hmm. based on the, uh, the polygraph. So after hours of harsh questioning by Gitchell and Ridge, Jesse begins to tell the officers what they want to hear. That he, Jason, and Damien killed the three boys. Jesse later said that he kept telling them that he didn't know who did it. He just knew of it, you know, but basically what a friend had told him. Yeah. But they kept uh, hollering and screaming at him, according to Jesse. They kept telling him that they knew he had something to do with it because other people said that he had something to do with it. And he said, after I told them that the boys were, were what they were wearing, he asked, were they tied up? Mm-hmm. This is what the police yeah. asked him. I said, yes. They asked, what were they tied up with? I told them, brown rope. He just got mad. He said, no, they were tied up with shoestrings. 
So I had to go through the story again and again until I got the story completely correct. Oh. This reminds me a lot of Making a Murderer. Yeah. On yeah. Remember they had the, the guy that had the learning disabilities mm-hmm. that they put on and just kind of... If the, and this was, you know, years before that. Yeah. So eventually the inconsistencies that were part of his stories uh, kind of got all ironed out. And these were stories like... For example, the inconsistencies, like Jesse said, that the murders happened at noon. Well, these had to happen at nighttime. Mm-hmm. And then he says that they were tied up with rope, which ended up being shoestrings. Shoe and he's got learning disabilities, but he surely knows the difference between rope and shoestrings. Right. So eventually, all these things got to where the stories matched up. Five hours after picking Jesse up, they taped his confession. Think about this. They talked to this man. By the way, without an attorney. Yeah. For several hours. Can't be doing that. Before. Yeah. Well, they can, but they took advantage of a guy that didn't know that he could have an attorney. Yes, exactly. But they talked to him and all this stuff and didn't record anything until the actual confession. See. So in Jesse's confession, he states that he, Jason, and Damien were in Robin Hood Woods. He watched Damien hit Chris Byers in the head with his fist, and he said he bruised him up real bad. Then he said that uh, Jason hit Stevie Branch. Then Michael Moore took off running, so Jesse chased him down and held him down till the others could get there. Then he left. Jesse Miss Kelly left. And he said, but then he came back a few minutes later, and the three boys were naked and tied up. And then he said that Jason and Damien started screwing them and stuff. And then they started uh, cutting them, and then he turned around and left because... Uh, and went home because he said he didn't want to be a part of that. Now, this is Jesse's confession. They called and asked why he didn't stay, and he said he just couldn't stay. Now, this is, you know, so that's what supposedly happened, according to the confession. With that confession in hand, by 10.30 p.m. on June 3rd, 1993, Damien, Jason, and Jesse were all three arrested and charged with three counts of murder. A press conference the next day held to announce that the arrests were made, and uh, Detective Gitchell asked how confident he felt about the case on a scale of 1 to 10. He answered 11. Hmm. Remember we talked about Vicki Hutchison, the uh, waitress, yeah. that had the story about the witches and her son, 8-year-old mm-hmm. Aaron, had interviewed? Well, he did another interview, and now he says he witnessed the murder, and Jesse caught him, and he got away, and the story just seemed so ludicrous that people were like, that, that's so far-fetched, there's no way that happened. Now he's changed the story completely. We understand he's eight. But now it went from he used to hang out with these boys that he was there that day. But Gitchell was happy to have the information because he felt like that this was just like another um, tool that he had to help prosecute these boys. Right. Mm-hmm. So while everybody else thought it was ludicrous, he was just happy to have it. So let's keep in mind that the police department was under a lot of pressure here to make an arrest in this case. You're in a Bible belt. You got three dead little boys and families that are yelling and screaming and they want justice. So I understand that part of it. But they became fixated on these three suspects, even though they had zero Zero physical evidence tying them to the crime. They went to Jesse's house and talked to him about, you know, getting the reward and talking about the truck and all that stuff. And, And like I said, this is a mentally challenged man. They grilled him for two and a half hours, went down to Tourney Present, 
So everything in this case just looks like, mm-hmm. and and Damien's main thing is, oh, he dresses in black and he's got some tattoos and my my goodness, everybody today would be suspected of well, murder. Yeah, absolutely. You just, I guess you're just trying to pin it on somebody. So. And then you got Jesse saying, you know, that they just kept screaming at him until he told them what they wanted, and you know, it's just everything about this so far. Was there, and, and a lot of what was said was wrong. Keep in mind, what Jesse said was they were tied up with shoestrings. That was wrong. Jesse made the comment that they were sexually assaulted. That was not the case. These boys were not sexually assaulted. So all this stuff that Jesse had said was flat up wrong. Mm-hmm. And the police ignored it. Like I said, they were so fixated on the three that they didn't follow up on a call from a Bojangles there in town. That said, a woman calls up. She says, hey, we've got a guy here in the restaurant. He's in the bathroom. He's covered in blood. And he's in the bathroom cleaning up. You might want to send somebody out here. Now, at the time, keep in mind, they didn't know this was before the reports of the missing boys and all this stuff. So there was no way of knowing the boys were murdered at the time. But you get a call saying that there's a guy covered in blood in your bathroom. So a cop finally comes out. Several minutes later, I've heard up to an hour after this call, this is a small town. What what else are you doing? Yeah. So he, they come out there. The police got there, and they went through the drive-thru. They, they didn't got him in the restaurant? No. They went to the drive-thru, and they said that the guy was already gone. So they didn't even go inside. Oh, my gosh. This is terrible. So the only other evidence that they had in this case were a few threads that they said could have been Jesse's and Damien's home. A few threads. And we're going to get into more of that evidence later. Yeah, but Those cops should have been arrested right away. Or something. Not arrested, but fired or whatever. For not getting in there like they should have. So you got a, a, a screwed up confession from a mentally challenged boy. You've got a person you didn't even follow up on that was covered in blood in a Bojangles restaurant the night of the murder that you find out after the fact. But still, you, you know now that it existed. And you've got two threads that we're going to talk about. One one supposedly matched or could have matched a bathrobe that was in Jesse's house. Mm-hmm. And the other one matched a shirt that was not even not their shirt, like a shirt that was in the house that could have transferred onto their shirt and ended up at a crime scene. That's it. That's the physical evidence they really had at this time. And they decided that they were going to try all three of these kids as adults. And at the time, I think Damien was 17, uh, Jesse was 17, and Jason was 16. So because Jesse gave this confession, they had his decide to have his trial separate from Damien and Jason's. But they had Damien and Jason's together. Mm-hmm. And Jason's attorney tried to get a separate trial because he thought that would help himself, but they wouldn't give a separate, separate trial because they wanted him to be guilty by association, more yeah. or less. So I'm not going to dive too deep in the actual trials. Uh, if you really want to see some great in-depth coverage, and I used a lot of this for research, there's some HBO um, documentaries that came out back in, well, one of them came out in 96, but it's called Paradise Lost, Episodes 1-2, and there's a third, too, that was later down the road. These are on YouTube. They're free. You don't have to have Amazon or any of that. Go watch these. But I'm going to tell you, they're very disturbing. Uh, they show the actual crime scene video of after they've pulled the boys' bodies out and them laying on the bank. And it's an image you can't get out of your mind. So, But if you want to know about the, they were actually allowed 
to come in with the cameras and film these trials, which is going to play a huge role in the story going forward. On January 18, 1994, uh, the, the uh, jury selection for Jesse and Miss Callie's trial started in Cornyn, Arkansas. They chose a jury of seven women and eight men, including alternates. So the actual trial started with the state's opening argument by John Fogelman. He told jurors right off the bat that while they might find errors and discrepancies in Jesse's confession, that was only because he was trying to minimize his role in the events. The defense, led by uh, Dan Stedman, said that they would show that his client's prosecution came from tremendous pressure for arrest in this case and that Damien Echols' tunnel vision that the investigator had from day one. He argued that Jesse's so-called confession, we'll say, came from interrogation tactics that broke his will and scared him beyond measure. With virtually no physical evidence placing Jesse at the scene of the crime, Fogelman called Lisa Sackavicious from the state crime lab to testify that a green polyester thread that was found on a Cub Cub Scout cap of one of the boys was microscopically similar to fibers found on a shirt found in Damien's house. A red uh, piece of rayon fiber found near the body was similar to a fiber of a red uh, bathrobe that was in Jesse's house. Probably not worn by either one, but transferred secondarily. Now, when she was cross-examined, she conceded that many fibers are microscopically similar to each of the discovered within. So even this bit of evidence was was nothing. Nothing. The only other evidence the state had was a book that they found at Damien's house that was called Never on a Broomstick that had some underlined passages. And we'll talk more about that book when we get into uh, Damien's trial. After introduction of the book and the microfiber, the state rested its case. That's all they had. The defense chose not to let Jesse testify because, obviously, his low IQ and the fact that they felt like that under the uh, intense scrutiny of prosecutors that he would just panic and say whatever. So they decided that was just best that he not going up there. Jesse was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. He was given life in prison and two consecutive 20-year terms. Once again... Zero evidence placing this kid a forced confession that did not line up with any of the actual facts of the case. And he gets three life sentences. Jesse was told to hold his head down during the verdict reading by his attorney. He just felt it would be best. That didn't do anything but lead to speculation from onlookers in the courtroom that uh, he it was an admission of guilt because he never raised his head up. Yeah. Two weeks later, jury selection started for Damien and Jason's trial in Jonesboro, Arkansas. The prosecution offered a deal to Jesse to testify against Damien and Jason, but he refused the day before the trial began. They felt like that they really had nothing against the boys without Jesse's confession. Mm -hmm. And they weren't allowed to use the confession in this trial. So they needed him to testify so they could hear it again. And, And during the course of this trial... They even were slick to say something like, oh, in Jesse's confession, just to get it out there, even though they knew that they couldn't use the confession. They said, and then when they, you know, they, they were like, 
they asked for a mistrial immediately when he did that, and the judge overruled it and would not allow it. So without Jesse's testimony, they were left with nothing but this same circumstantial evidence that they had for his trial mm-hmm. to try to, to go ahead and do this. So anyway, so, so the prosecutor spoke to the jury again, and he first told the jury that the state would prove through scientific evidence that statements of Jason and Damien that they committed the murders. Now, Jason's attorney, Paul Ford, said Jason was only there and, and arrested um, because of his association with Damien, that he was not a troublemaker. In fact, he took care of his younger brothers, was very responsible. He'd get them uh, to bed. He would get them up and dressed for school because his mother worked very late, so she wasn't able to do that. So he ended up being the primary caregiver for his brothers. He argued that Jason was only in court because police had uh, disregarded statements and physical evidence. He said, you will see evidence has been twisted to fit the puzzle that the state wants it to wants it to be. And uh, they've done what they could to make these pieces fit together. Scott Davidson, who's David, uh, Damien's attorney, he used his opening statement to address that his biggest concern was that the jury would find him guilty because of his, uh, not because of his actions, but because of the fact that he was just different. He wasn't the all-American boy. It was the way that he dressed and his tattoos. He said, yeah, he was kind of weird. But at the same time, no evidence proved that he committed any crime. Detective Ridge reported that during Damien's interrogation that he said that all people hold demonic forces inside of them. He also said he made comments about the mystical significance of water and noted that three was a sacred number in the Wiccan religion. Damien also acknowledged that he liked reading books by Stephen King. In a search of Damien's home, it turned up 11 black t-shirts, the skull of a dog, in the book, Never Run a Broomstick. They also pointed out that on May 5th, it was a full moon. Oh, man. They're just reaching, aren't they? The prosecution called an expert witness, Dr. Dale Graffis, to the stand. Dr. Graffis was an occult expert from Ohio. I'm going to use that term loosely. He testified that the number three was most powerful, a number in the practice of Satanism. When he was cross-examined, They asked if the number three has a significance in other religions, such as Christianity, the Holy Trinity, for example. He said he cannot make that statement. So Griffiths said that in the murders of the three boys, they were using trappings of occultism during this event. He pointed to the night of the full moon. He said that the removal of blood as an example of the trapping. When asked of the significance of sucking blood, Griffiths explained that Blood was the life force. Usually, they prefer to have a child, a child that is very young. The younger, the more innocent, the better the life force. When the defense cross-examined Graffis, they were able to show that his Ph.D. was earned at a mail-order college and that he never took a single class to earn his Ph.D. (laughs) So his credibility in the occult as an occult expert really didn't mean squat. When medical examiner Dr. Frank Peretti was on the stand, Brent Davis handed him a knife from a lake that was found behind Damien and, and Jason's house. Peretti agreed that the wound on, on Chris Byers was consistent with the serrated portion of this knife. On cross-examinations, Peretti also conceded that the Byers wounds were also equally consistent with a knife belonging to John Mark Byers, which is Chris's stepfather. He also um, conceded that 
Many of the descriptions of the murders in Jesse's confession were not confirmed by the medical examiner's office. For example, none of the boys were strangled, raped, or tied with any rope. The prosecution had one more witness, Michael Carson. Now, Michael spent some time with Jason in a juvenile uh, detention center. He testified that Jason admitted to him that he killed the boys. He said he dismembered the kids and sucked the blood out of their penis and scrotum and put the balls in his mouth. He said he came forward because he had a soft heart and he saw the family on TV and he felt really bad for them. A defense attorney had already been approached, though, by a juvie parole officer that said Carson was going to come forward and that he knew about uh, the penis and all that stuff because he had told him about it, not Jason, and that this kid was lying. And then when you looked into the history of this kid, he definitely was anything but a soft heart. He just basically was trying to get a deal to get out of Mm -hmm. juvie. So now you got Carson, who was lying, as their main witness. And then you've got the fiber, and you got the book, and you got the knife was all the evidence that they had. And none of these were for sure we can pin this. Like I said, the knife. Now keep in mind the knife when the medical examiner said it also matched the knife by Chris Byer's stepfather. This is going to be the first time that we're going to hear mention that his stepfather could actually be a uh, possible suspect in this case. So the case against Jason was so weak that the prosecution went to Jason's attorney and offered 40 years with the possibility of parole at 15 years and returned to testify against Damien. Jason emphatically rejected it. Detective Mike Allen pointed out he put, kind of looked at a map, right? They had this giant map, and he pointed to a spot on the map behind Jason and Damien's house where the knife was found. There was this lake back there, and mm-hmm. that's where they found his knife. So when cross-examination, he was asked, asked if he was saying this knife was the murder weapon. He said, no, sir, I'm not telling the jury that. The only other evidence that they had that could have possibly tied Damien to the scene was a trace of blue wax that they found on one of the boys that matched a candle that was in Damien's room. The prosecution wrapped up its case against Damien with testimony of two girls who said that they overheard him confess to the murders while they were attending the softball game in May of 1993. Jody Medford, a junior high student, said that uh, she was about 25 feet away from Damien, and she heard him say that he killed those three boys and would kill two more before turning himself in, and he already had one of them picked out. So Then 12-year-old Christy Van Vicky, who was with this young lady, she said that in, that she had heard the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. The defense had te- uh, testimony from Damien's mom saying that he did spend the night with her. So he had an alibi that he was with her that night. They then are going to call Jesse to the stand. They called Damien to the stand. Damien was asked about his focus on the Wiccan religion. He said it was basically a close involvement with nature. It has nothing to do with Satanism, and he definitely was not a Satanist. He insisted that he was not into human sacrifices or anything like that. So Damon's attorney, Val Price, then asked him to read some excerpts from his personal journal, journal which the state had in, as using as part of their defense. And some of these quotes and stuff he wrote in there were just from like authors like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. One of them was from A Midsummer Night's Dream. So he reads these things, and these guys are reading it. It's like, oh, my God, this is sad. It's like yeah. they're just quotes from famous authors. When asked if he why he had a dog skull in his room, he just said that he thought it was cool. 
And they asked why he had evil on his knuckles. He said the same thing. He just thought it was cool. Then they asked why he wore black. He said that he was told by somebody that he looks good in black, and he was really self-conscious about his looks. So, right, so he just started yeah. wearing it. So the defense wanted to show that no matter how different Damien seemed or was, that he was just a, a teenager in Memphis that had nothing to do with the crime. He just dressed a little different, acted a little different. Damien said he had never even heard of the boys until he saw them on the news. When he was asked how he felt about being charged in the, in the murders, he said sometimes angry, sometimes sad, and sometimes scared. The defense questioned why the police didn't record any of the interview with Damien or Jason, even though they had audio and video equipment, and why they didn't follow up on the guy at Bojangles, and there was blood and stuff apparently on the walls, and they never sent them off for samples. Then the defense rested. Jason Baldwin never testified on his defense during the case. Closing arguments for the prosecution included Fogelman arguing that while most people might not believe in Satan or that Satan-type stuff, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is what the defendants believed. He said a religion is a motivating force. It gives people who want to do evil and want to commit these kind of murders a reason to be able to do it. He also said that if you look inside of Damien that there is no soul there. Val Price, the defense, brought up that just because you like weird stuff and have weird stuff in your room doesn't make you a murderer. Exactly. He reminded the jury that they needed to find his client guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he saw plenty of shadows of doubt just based on the lack of evidence and the testimony that they've heard. He also pointed out that the, there was blood on uh, the knife of John Mark Byers, once again, bringing him up as a possible suspect. The bloody man in Bojangles' restaurant that was never followed up on. All of this should have been enough to give juries, uh, members, jury members the shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Jason's attorney just requested that the jury take off the blindfold and see the case for what it really was and send his client home. The following afternoon, the jury... Returned their verdict to Judge Burnett. Both defendants were found guilty of capital murder of all three boys. Family member of the boys cheered and hugged each other. Jason cried a little bit. Damien showed very little emotion. Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, said he hoped both would be executed. He wished he could have 10 minutes alone with both of these boys and that he would do it himself. He said he'd like to do to them what they did to those little boys. Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life without any chance for parole. Damien was given the death penalty by lethal injection. Jason was transported immediately to the penitentiary in Pine Bluff. Damien began life on death row in the state maximum security prison in Arkansas. Attorneys for Jason, Jesse, and Damien filed appeals to ask the Supreme Court to uh, look into it, but all convictions were upheld. That was far from the end of the controversy, though, surrounding the conviction of what the papers were now calling the West Memphis Three. In 1996, HBO ran a documentary called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders of Robin Hood Hills. The film started a movement and eventually a website dedicated to the release of the West Memphis Three. The documentary depicted West Memphis as a hellhole, basically, with residents 
blinded by fantasies of satanic cults and jurors that are unable to sort out facts rationally. It also led to a wedding. That was the wedding of Damien and Lori Davis. She saw the movie up in New York, and uh, she began to communicate with Damien. She was a big advocate on trying to get him released, and during the, the time of, that they stored correspondence and stuff, they ended up getting engaged, and they got married in 1999 in the prison with a uh, Buddhist ceremony. So that's different, but there you go. Mm-hmm. Something good comes out of everything. Consensus that the three might have been wrongfully accused continued to, to grow a following. In March 2000, Paradise Lost 2, Revelation, was released on HBO. It suggested that John Mark Byer was the real killer. And we talked about him a little bit a few seconds ago. He was the one that had the knife and they found some blood on it. Mm-hmm. In 2002, Mara Levy released her book, Devil's Not, The True Story of the West Memphis Three. Now, her book argued that the trials were more uh, injustice than justice, which we already kind of yeah. had, had that following. In 2003, Vicki Hutcherson, remember, she's the, the waitress. waitress. Mm-hmm. She told a reporter that everything she said was a lie. She said that she felt if she didn't cooperate with the police that they might take her son away from her. Then you had some big-name celebrities that got on board with this, on the uh, as they were calling it, the th- Free the West Memphis Three. Mm-hmm. People like Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, and Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson all got on board. Peter Jackson, as a matter of fact, spent his own money for independent investigations, which led to findings such as Christopher Byers' genitals were not actually cut off, but had all the uh, signs of being possibly eaten off by predators, which was never even considered. Now, it turns out I don't think that was the case, but at least brought up the fact when people were looking at the, mm-hmm. uh, this investigator was actually looking at the crime scene photos, that that was a possibility that the, re- the jagged marks maybe weren't from a serrated right, knife, from a t- but t- from an animal, unfortunately. The biggest bombshell that this investigation produced was DNA evidence at the crime scene that was retested. None of the uh, DNA there was found to match Jesse or Damien or Jason. But there was a hair that was found that was tied up in one of the knots mm-hmm. of the shoelaces that matched Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather. Oh, gosh. There was another hair that matched a friend of Terry Hobbs by the name of David Jacoby. It was in a stump that was really close to the, the body. I don't know how you find a hair in a stump sit there thinking, how in the woods. How do you do that? Based on the evidence, John Mark Byers believes now that the three boys were innocent. convicted and they were actually innocent, but he thinks they were convicted wrongly. Judge Burnett, though, wasn't quite as easy to sway and uh, when they demanded a new trial he said no okay there's something fishy about that i mean if he's a judge he should know better i mean if he don't hear the evidence like people don't know that or hear the evidence then what's up with that well my guess is he probably didn't want all this to come to light and be like well why didn't you do this to begin with when you had such a crappy you know evidence why'd you let so much fly before and this was the easier way just to just let it go and not bring it back up so They, all three attorneys, appealed to the Supreme Court. Finally, November 4th, 2010, they received the first bit of good news that they had had in years. The Supreme Court ordered reconsideration for new trials. In 2011, they were offered an Alfred plea deal. It was offered to all three, and all three had to accept 
in order for it to work. So mm-hmm. two of the three said yes. If one said no, no deal. No deal. Damien and Jesse almost immediately said yes. Jason, on the other hand, wasn't so quick to take the deal. Jason was convinced that eventually they would be exonerated and walk out of their free people without having to take any kind of Alfred plea. Now, if you're unfamiliar with an Alfred plea, an Alfred plea is basically you're going to admit guilt at the same time maintaining your innocence, Mm -hmm. which sounds like a complete oxymoron. Mm -hmm. It's basically saying there was enough evidence to convict you of of being guilty, but you're going to accept the plea and, and walk out. And over the years, Jason had learned to love prison, believe it or not. He had a job there. He... He befriended the guards and was looking forward to his next year in prison school. And so he wasn't so quick to just say, let me back out where everybody's going to hate me. Jason also said that before this, that he wouldn't consider any type of, of conceding to the prosecution, so to say. He wouldn't go give them anything they wanted just because. Jason finally did accept the deal, though, and he said that, he didn't take it for him. He took it for Damien. On August 19, 2011, Judge David Laser, who replaced Judge Burnett on, the, on this case, said that it was a tragedy on all sides. Then Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles walked out of prison as free men. Wow. They spent 18 years of their life behind bars. And But keep in mind... They're still convicted murderers. Yes. That's, that's they had to them. agree mm-hmm. that they committed the crime yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to be able to walk. So let's talk about what really happened. In 2012, Peter Jackson uh, released a, a documentary called uh, West of Memphis. Now, keep in mind, he's the guy who was so behind us that he used his own money to do this documentary and his own money for the investigations. Uh, Like I said, he's the guy who did Lord of the Rings and all that. So pretty well known. It's strongly suggested that Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, participated in these murders. Now, Hobbs had a long history of abuse, including admitted assault on his wife and accusations of child beating and assaults of neighbors. JoLynn McGuire said that she saw Terry Hobbs doing uh, some laundry and and cleaning mud off of his clothes the night of the murder. It was also reported that a pocket knife that little Stevie treasured, always had with him, was found in Terry's possessions. So did the neighbors, I guess, just didn't come up and say, hey, I saw him do this? I guess they didn't think it made sense at the time, but everything looks different when you start looking at it from a distance, I guess. Pam Hobbs who was Stevie's mom and and Terry's wife at the time, said that Stevie would constantly complain about Terry. He just didn't like him, was the bottom line. But he's an eight-year-old little boy, so, you know, if you you don't always get your way, maybe you complain about the step-parents, and that's the way she took it. But looking back, she said that three weeks before the murder, Stevie came to her and asked her to divorce Terry and leave him. Without being very specific, he just didn't like him. So last but not least, there were three young men that came out that were nephews of Terry Hobbs that said that it was kind of a closely guarded family secret that Terry killed the three boys. That's a lot of stuff 
that starts pointing to Terry Hobbs. Mm -hmm. And then you factor in the fact that they found the knife in his possession. This was like, they found it like in a box with a bunch of his other stuff. So it's like, why, why would Stevie's knife be there when Stevie would have had it on him? Yeah. How do you got it? So you got that aspect. Then you figure, remember they said that they found the DNA evidence that Peter Jackson's investigation turned up said that there was a hair in the shoestring that matched Terry Hobbs and then his friend Jacoby's hair that was right there. A lot of things are starting to lean this way. But the thing that sways me towards Terry Hobbs is what happened in 2013. And this is the new information that I said that I hadn't heard before Mm -hmm. until recently. So in 2013, what likely could be the true story of what happened in those woods that day came out in two separate affidavits signed by Billy Wayne Stewart and a guy named Benny Guy. The level of detail and plausibility make these things seem so credible. Now, even my keep in mind, one of these is an admitted drug dealer and one of them is a convicted felon. But at this point in time, the stories just seem so real and details that they have that really hadn't come out just makes this a plausible situation. So according to Stewart and Guy, they said that on May 5th, 1993, Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, and two teenagers from a local trailer park, L.G. Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas, showed up at his West Memphis home to buy pot. So while Stewart was selling the pot to the two boys, he noticed that Hobbs and Jacoby were kissing in the pickup truck across the street. Two guys? Two guys. Okay. According to Stewart, Hobbs was a bisexual with a preference for sex with little boys. Sicko. Hobbs had invited his son over to several pool parties, to which Stewart always insisted that his son decline. So what happened after that was told to Stewart by Buddy Lucas, one of the teenagers, in April of 1995. So now we're a couple of years after the murders. The two teens got back in the tr- the pickup truck. He said they drove around, smoked some pot, and were drinking whiskey before heading down a, a dirt road by the Blue Beacon Wood. Now, Blue Beacon Wood, by the way, we didn't touch on this, is a car wash that's right there on the edge of the woods. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's where they were out doing it. So they were technically in the same woods. Terry Hobbs asked the two teens to get out of the truck and wrestle while he and Jacoby watched. I think we know what we mean by wrestle. Mm-hmm. This turned into sexual activity between all four men. During this time, the three boys, Chris, Michael, and Stevie, appeared on their bikes. Wrong place at the wrong time. Terry Hobbs screamed, get them little fuckers. Jacoby beat one of the kids. Hobbs ordered Buddy and LG to pull off his pants. This would have been Chris Byers. Hobbs walked over to the boy and repeatedly bit the boy's penis and scrotum, then cut off his genitals. Terry then said the other two boys had to be killed for what they had seen. Hobbs and Jacoby did just that. The boy's clothes and bodies were drug over to the water and their bikes were thrown into the the bayou. That was the story from Stewart. Benny Guy tells a very similar Stewart. Our story. He said that Buddy was uh, staying at his house at the time in 1994 and confessed his involvement to him. 
Benny Guy said that Hollingsworth also confessed while he was in a Crittenden County jail in 1995. He added a few other facts, like the fact that uh, Terry became enraged when one of the boys kicked him after they had grabbed him, and that's what made him fly off the handle. He verified that Hobbs told them to take the pants off of the little boy. So now you got two different people at two different locations telling the exact same story. Pam Hicks, which was formerly Pam Hobbs, also believes that Terry Hobbs murdered her son now. She launched legal efforts in 2003 to obtain additional evidence that would link Hobbs to the crime. Most shocking of all, Billy Stewart tried to call the West Memphis Police Department investigator Bill Sanders in 1995 to tell him the story that he had heard from Buddy Lucas. Sanders never even bothered to return the phone calls to Stewart. What is up with this cop? With several cops. All three are still listed as convicted murderers and are still fighting for their exoneration. My gosh. So this this is just a horrific story. And this probably will sound like a stupid question, but so these three guys are still charged with the murder. Correct. Okay. So what if the other three guys confessed? Well, I, I mean, think, how can they be charged if somebody else is already charged well, with that murder? Well, but they couldn't. But the problem is, this is no longer an ongoing investigation. Because of the fact that these guys are guilty, it would literally take somebody coming up and confessing before this would ever become retried. And until that happens, until that happens, this is a closed case. So they're not even trying to find anybody. They're not looking. They're not following up on leads. It's done as far as they're concerned that's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard of in my life i agree i mean i don't even know what to say this was such a terrible story and i know somebody's going to ask the question but part of their deal to walk out was an agreement that they couldn't sue who couldn't sue the teenagers so they they're out of jail and they're free but they're convicted murderers and they can't sue the state that's part of the deal that was how they were able to walk free so the state knows. Mm-hmm. They know that they were they screwed up. Mm-hmm. Well, you think there would be consequences for that, for them? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a horrible situation. And uh, I know Damien Eccles and Johnny Depp are good friends even today. Friend Johnny Depp's had nothing but great things to say about Damien Eccles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason, he wants to be able to become an attorney. And be able to help other people that have been wrongfully accused. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as a convicted yeah, murderer, can't you can't become an attorney. So they're, they're, they're still ongoing today to try to get exonerated. So now that they're, you know, and they're doing stuff. Now, Jesse, Miss Kelly was the only one who moved back to West Memphis. He still lives there, but the other two moved away. Well, yeah. And uh, Damien's still married. Oh, and, he is? Yeah, he, well, they're they're still married. And, and so that's that's where we're at. That's kind of the update that I've got on the West Memphis Three. So, like I said, I, I'd heard the story, and I was fascinated by the story. The movie Devil's Knot with Reese Witherspoon, which used to be on Netflix, it may still be, is a very good story of this. So if you haven't seen that and you want to hear a little more, uh, like I said, I would advise everybody to watch the uh, Paradise Lost there on YouTube, but very disturbing. And there's there's a bunch of good documentaries out there, but this this story to me is absolutely captivating. It's horrific as to what happened to the kids. It's even more horrific to think that it could have been one of their step parents mm-hmm. uh, to do it. And just uh, this thing just had so many twists and turns and injustices. 
that I just felt like the story needed to be retold, especially right. with the newer information that I hadn't heard, which it's been since 2013 this came out. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it's widely known just for some reason I didn't know it. Yeah. And it's just a shame because three more lives are pretty much ruined forever. Yeah. I mean, they can't. I mean, I don't know. I guess all they can do is do the best they can, but they sure can't count on the courts to, you know. Well, then you run into the situation, too, you know. And and a lot of this information I heard was old, so I don't know what's updated on this. But, you know, they've got laws out there that you can't uh, capitalize on a crime as far as money wise. Yeah. And that's why OJ couldn't write a book. And that's why, you know, some of this Mm -hmm. stuff, if you commit a crime, you can't make money off of it. And so like a lot of people were wanting to make movies, like you had devil's Knot, and you've had the documentaries and stuff. And for a while they were saying that they wouldn't even be able to make money off of those. So Mm -hmm. they wouldn't even able to make a living doing that. Yeah. Because of the the law. I, I mean, I'm not talking about the, I'm talking about the deceased. I just can't even imagine this heartbreaking just to even think what they went through it's just horrible well that's the thing and and we barely touched on the surface if you watch um just start googling on youtube the or go to youtube and and just looking up west memphis three and there's so many good documentaries that show the hatred Mm -hmm. from the townsfolk that show the trials and what went on and and Every bit of the, you know, like I said, the details that were so involved in this. Yeah. It really was making of a murderer before making yeah, of a murderer. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. But yeah. very disturbing, and I'm ready to move on to something cheerier. Well, God bless your souls. So let's um, let's say a big thank you to our iTunes reviews this Alrighty. week. Paige Sprague, which uh, her and her sister and her... Um, uh, cousin are good friends of the show mm-hmm. and they started their own podcast called Something in the Night give it a listen they just got a couple of episodes out there just getting started so be nice <laughs> they know that they're learning and they know that, that they're still putting stuff together and mm-hmm. we had a chance to have them on uh, our, our Patreon episode that'll be coming out so you'll get to hear them here in a couple of days if you're well actually tomorrow yeah. the first. you'll be able to hear them tomorrow a little bit but very likable young ladies and um, they have a, an ear for the spooky mm-hmm. so but thank you so much Paige, for giving us a review then we got becky 581 morgan paget it looks like no it's page h sorry oh. i should have wrote that better no well morgan page h or paget <laughs> <laughs> and the dude mcgee it's always good to have a dude in there i um, appreciate you guys for your reviews they're very nice thank you so much new patreon uh supporters this week scotty Willie Charlie and Ashley Spencer, thank you three so much. Thank you guys. We appreciate you guys. And real quick before we forget, we've got two huge events coming up. Now they're just a couple of weeks away. October 20th, Saturday night, 7 p.m., Nashville, Tennessee. Us, Graveyard Tales, EVP Mediums, Macabre Melts. Come on out to Hell Nashville and hang out with us. Have some fun. This is going to be an awesome event. It is creeping towards the sold-out range, so go ahead and get your tickets now. Don't wait till the last minute. You know how it is. It'll get close to Halloween. Everybody will want to start snatching tickets up, and you'll end up missing out. We only have 80 seats available. So you can get tickets on our website for 10 bucks a piece. Unlimited everything. It's going to be fun. And if you like that one and you want to do two <laughs> the following weekend, 
Or if you just can't make it to that when you're closer to the Cincinnati area, you can see us, Brohio, and Twisted Philly. It's at a place called uh, Wood or Firewood Grill. It's an awesome place. And uh, that one seats 100, but it's almost sold out already. That one got off to a quick start. There's going to be uh, people dressing up in costumes and stuff. I think Dina Marie's talked about doing some face painting. So come on out, 7 o'clock, 10 bucks for that one. Also, you can get tickets for that on our website. And now let's take a couple of minutes and uh, hear a little more fun stuff. Let's talk to Angel Mays from uh, Color Me Dead. Hey guys, I thought it would be fun to bring this guest on because uh, obviously we just did Skinwalker Ranch last episode. And uh, this person lives within 15 minutes of Skinwalker Ranch, so I thought she might be able to give us some insight. Most of you are probably familiar with her because you listen to her show. This is Angel Mays, one of the hosts of uh, Color Me Dead. Angel, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, I can't say Color Me Dead without in my head having to stop and actually think about it because instinct just wants me to say Color Me Bad. And that's a whole different... <laughs> Which is totally fair. I've been serenaded the lyrics of uh, I Want to Sex You Up. So <laughs> recently, go. because somebody else also can't stop and think about Color Me Dead, it's got to be Color Me Bad. <laughs> so good. I'm not the only one then, so I don't consider myself that weird. All right. <laughs> Of course, we didn't mention, and we're going to give you a chance before you get off here to talk about your podcast, Color Me Dead, but you guys have had uh, been successful for a while now, so it's a, it's a fun show, especially, you know, for if you like the mixture of a little bit of comedy and true crime uh, mixed in together, you guys are, are a perfect mix of that. I, You know what? We've had a lot of fun with it, and I'm glad that people enjoy it as much as we enjoy doing it. But yeah, if you like foul-mouthed humor and... and gory details of murders and serial killers you're lining look no further <laughs> <laughs> awesome so let's let's get into skinwalker ranch a little bit and uh, okay you know you said you live close and you and you told me that you've been out there a few times back uh when you were in school and then uh a few times since then tell me a little bit about what it was like back when you originally went activity wise and stuff and what it's like these days um you know in the, in the late 90s, when we were going out there as teenagers in high school, you could feel it was almost like stepping off an airplane when you get into the south. It was like you had to cut yourself a slice of breath, you know, a slice of air. It was just thick, and you could feel things around you. Um, it's almost like when you walk into a room and you know people are looking at you, but you can't see the people. Um, almost immediately within getting there, you're going to feel the chills. I mean, even in the middle of the summer, it's cold out there. And then it'll warm up and then it'll get real cold. Um, you can feel a presence always out there. Um, and you never know, you know, what's walking behind you or next to you or even in front of you. Uh, it was always kind of that, you know, when you get that sudden doom feeling and you know something's wrong, that's how it feels when you go onto that ranch. That's how I felt on my wedding the day. The last time I was... That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what it is when you're walking down the aisle and you're like, oh, shit, this is permanent. Oh, God, <laughs> that feeling. That's what that's what that feels like. But uh, the last time I was out there was in uh, about 2010, 11. And uh, you still get that weird feeling when you get out there as though you're not alone. And, you know, we didn't really see as much. Um, you could still hear things and you would you would hear noises that you wouldn't hear normally or naturally anywhere else out in the wilderness where you are. Um, but definitely, definitely still a feeling of, I shouldn't be here. So let me ask you this. 
they, they've obviously, from the time that you first started going out there to the time now, you know, this thing has changed hands a couple of times and and now oh, it's yeah. being used for completely different stuff. Do you get the feeling that, that the place that owns it now, because I think they bought it in 2016, that they're using it more towards research of the paranormal or are they using it for something else? Um, I think it's a combination of the both. I think the gentleman that purchased that has his hands in a lot of different things. Uh, from what I understand from different interviews and documentaries that I've watched. Um, but he's not very quick to let go of any information or feed any information about what they're doing out there. But you can't deny that there's paranormal and, you know, there's other things out there. So I think he's got, I think he's got his hands in a couple of different baskets. So what do you think is going on out there? Do you think it really is like a portal? Do you think it's, it's got something military related that maybe that's what's drawing or that it's the military themselves. What's, what's your thoughts on what's going on? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. I wouldn't say that it was, I don't want to say that it's military related, although a lot of people would disagree with me um, because, you know, back in the day when we were younger kids tooling around out there, there wasn't a military presence out there to my knowledge. And the things that you would see out there were just, I mean, we, we snuck out there when we were 17 years old and uh, tried to make it to the homestead. And you would see orbs of light just shoot across this place. I mean, bright, like the brightest light you've ever seen. And dozens of them just, and the noises that it made when they were shooting across these fields. And some of them would pop right up off the ground and spin, stop in dead motion and start spinning the other way and shoot straight into the sky. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. And that's, you know, if, if that's military, I don't know. Um, I think that when when things started to get exponentially strange and the uh, the one owner that had the most problems out there, I can't remember the gentleman's name for to save my life right now, but he was having, you know, cattle mutilations. His uh, animals were disappearing. They were being dissected, things of that nature. I I really just feel like that's something a little bit more supernatural out of this world. You know, I think once the military did come in after he started having problems, I think it drew a little bit more in. Well, you know, there's people that say that the military, at least, you know, when you get into all these conspiracy theories, they think that the military is behind a lot of these um, disappearances and stuff like that. And the cattle mutilation, mutilations, they, they kind of think that the military might be behind that, which is why it happens so quickly. Right. Um, and I've, I've heard that if you... Uh, if you watch the the search for the skinwalker, the, the documentary, um, they do a couple of interviews with folks that have been out there or have previously owned the property. And one gentleman was out tagging calves and walked about a hundred yards away from the last calf that he tagged. His dog started barking, freaked out, had a c- complete come apart and ran in the opposite direction. And they went over to check out the, whatever the dog was barking at. And they said they heard nothing. They saw nothing. It was swift, deft, and there they come back, and this calf has been completely gutted. There's no blood. There's no splatter. There's no internal organs. I mean, things expertly cut off this animal, but no blood, you know. And uh, I just don't know how somebody can sneak up behind two people in a field, a flat open field, and do something like that, exsanguinate an animal, and not hear anything, not the animal, not people, not... I mean, how does that take place? Yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely if it's the military. Strange. What do the so. people in the area think about Skinwalker Ranch? And I mean, we, we know what it looks like from a different perspective from outside, but like, you know, everything that's local seems to not have the same 
uh, I guess, attraction to the locals as what it does from people that are a distance away. Like with me, I'm fascinated by Skinwalker. But as I was telling you off air, it's just like I live so close to Bobby Mackey's and Waverly and have been so many times. We don't think anything of it where other people, it's like a once in a lifetime destination. His, what do the locals think of Skinwalker right. Ranch? Um, depends on which locals you ask. So if you're like, if you're asking like my native friends that live out in Fort Duchesne or have knowledge of that area, they don't go out there. They don't want to go out there. Um, it's not this beautiful chunk of land or it's not of any concern to them. They're not interested in it. Um, a lot of people have had really bad experiences out there. You know, you come into town a little ways and for, you know, us, it's, it's kind of a rite of passage to go out there as a local. And then after that, if you go out there and you see nothing, you're either disenchanted or if you go out there and you do experience something, you either want to go back or you don't want to go back ever again, depending on the severity of what you see and hear and smell. <laughs> so have you had some smells out there? I have. Um, one of the times that we went, it would have been in the early 2000s, um, we were cutting through the side of this field and we were trying to make it to the homestead. And it's very difficult to get there, especially if they've got people um, – you know, patrolling and everything. But this smell was almost like, uh, like it, it would have been like dirty feet, something dying and wet dog. And it is pungent and it is strong and it is musky. And you'll be looking, you'll, you know, shining your flashlight around, kicking stuff over, thinking you're going to find something dead. And it never goes away. It just like follows right behind you. And you're just like, what the hell is that? That is strange. Um, I know they, they talked about a chemical smell a lot of times with the UFOs. Um, and I was just curious what, you know, chemical smell is pretty broad. I mean, that could be almost anything. Right. And that's, you know, with, with the experiences that I've had out there, you know, I've seen things, I've heard things, you know, the smell that we got wasn't uh, necessarily a chemical smell. A couple of the places where people have claimed to have very close encounters with UFOs aren't necessarily on Skinwalker Ranch, but close by in like other properties. I don't know if that smell comes with the experience or if it lingers, you know, after something's been in the area, but I've never smelled really a chemical smell, just like a very strong, pungent, musky, like something that will turn your stomach smell. So let me ask you this. This is kind of a connection and it's kind of, kind of a coincidence at the same time, but you tagged me in a link the other day to some kind of event that was going on at Skinwalker Ranch. And then like immediately, like the day or two after that, you tagged me in something else where the people who were doing the event canceled it because of threats that they got. How, yes. str how strange is that, that, you know, just the fact that I guess, I mean, and, and he didn't really elaborate. I don't know if that's somebody you know or if it's just something you, you saw, but I didn't see any elaboration on what kind of threats or who they came from. Did you see any of that? Uh, not, not, not much elaboration was made on the post. Um, initially, the event was supposed to be kind of like an over overnight camping type event. The The main portion was supposed to end at like 10, 10, 30. And then should you want to stay the night, you could. And then it was immediately canceled. The, the And they said that they were receiving threats. Later, somebody posted that they were receiving threats from the locals because they didn't want any activity or any nonsense stirred up that was going to affect them and the neighboring properties. And the more people that get out there and start kicking the earth around and making noise and stuff, it seems to draw in whatever's out there and so from what i understand it was the locals near there now what other threats they may have gotten were not discussed or posted um they've since decided to move the event off of skinwalker ranch so that people can still go 
um, to a different location, meet up with other people, discuss experiences, and uh, I think they're going to have a preview or a showing of uh, the most recent documentary, but it's nowhere near the Skinwalker Ranch, the location they're doing it now. So, so this event originally was going to actually be on the ranch itself? From what I understand, yes. Oh, that would have been cool. It wasn't going to be at the homestead, which is, yeah, I was actually thinking about going. Um, I was going to get a couple of friends to go with me because I'm a chicken shit, but uh, <laughs> the, it wasn't clear down on the homestead, but they were going to put it right there towards the front and let everybody, you know, build a bonfire and have an event. And then should you want to stay the night, they were going to allow that. And they've since changed it and then changed the location. Oh, wow. I mean, I guess I understand that. If there's, that just shows you what kind of belief that the locals have in, in the lore out there. Oh, yeah. You, you know, the, there's been times that we'll be walking out there and you can hear, you know, we, as we're walking in the front, you could hear guttural growling. And I stopped my buddy that was walking next to me. I was like, dude, can you hear that? And she said, oh, it's probably just a coyote. And I was like, well, that's awfully close, close to be a coyote. And if you know anything about coyotes, they don't get that close unless they're starving or rabid. And then you would start hearing popping noises. And, like, the best way for me to describe this, and you would see, like, orbs of light go blasting by. And I was like, you know what? Those are getting awfully close. I think it's time for us to go. (laughs) And then you would just hear, like, static electricity, almost like you were standing too close to power lines. But there's none out there on the ranch, you know, above you where we're at. And, I, you know, I spook pretty easily if I'm out in the open. If I'm watching a scary movie in my house, I'm fine. But if I'm out in the open and something can get me, I don't want to be there anymore. I can definitely understand that. So that's why you need to have your big-ass husband with you. All six foot. Yeah, my security. (laughs) (laughs) He is one big dude. Six foot ten, 350-pound behemoth. Yeah. He's got wrestler written all over him, I swear. (laughs) Yeah, he should have been. Of course, we got to hook up for a few minutes in uh, New Orleans, not too long. But uh, I got to meet up with you and your husband and, and Nikki for a little bit. And it was it was fun. I wish we could have spent more time together. Yeah, it w- I was really disappointed that the convention didn't go, you know, the way that it was planned. But at the end of the day, I'm glad that we got to go and we met some people, met other podcasters. So, I mean, in the end, it's it was still a good trip. It just wasn't the convention I was hoping for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had a blast. I mean, we got to meet a bunch of people and, and hang out with some other podcasters that we, you know, didn't get to, to, to actually interact with very much with in the past. I mean... Heck, we had Forrest Burgess from Astonishing, Astonishing Legends in our back seat telling us stories on the way to Myrtles. It don't get any better than that. Nice. Yeah, we, we had a couple of missed opportunities where, you know, we would text people or message them on Facebook and be like, hey, we're here. And they're like, we just left there. We're in an Uber. I'm like, shit. <laughs> so, yeah, trying to trying to link up with everybody, you know, without being, you know, in the hotel or at the convention center was a little bit difficult. But we did get to run into some fans that came up, you know, all the way from Texas. And uh, they were like, man, we drove five hours just to see you you guys. And I was like, sweet, let's go get a drink. <laughs> there you go. Well, it, was, it, was a, it was a good time. Angel, I know this was kind of last second. I appreciate you taking time to come on. Tell everybody how they, can, uh, how they can connect with you and Nikki with uh, Color Me Dead. Oh, I mean, if you're interested in finding us, um, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play. We post links on Facebook, Twitter. We have Instagram at Color Me Dead Podcast, and of course, Color Me Dead Podcast and everything on Facebook. We put new and uh, new episodes come out every Wednesday, and then we do what we call a so-sod, which is just us being goofy buttholes on Fridays. Well, you can't get asked for no more than that. Goofy buttholes is the way to go. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> well, thank you, dear. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. You can have a good one. That was Angel. We got a chance to talk to her for a little bit 
in uh, New Orleans when we were there. Remember know, she she came in when we were eating with, with Ryan, Ryan and yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very <laughs> no, fun. They wouldn't let them eat because they were already booked up, so we had to <laughs> I had to go outside <laughs> and talk to them. But uh, she's she's a trip, man. Her and uh, Nikki do a good job over on their podcast. They sure do. So, anyways, that wraps up a very uh, emotional show. Yeah. Yeah. So. But. I just want to say happy anniversary to you, baby. Thank you, babe. Happy anniversary to you. Thank you. I love you. I love you guys, too. And um, I hope you all have a great, great week. And we look forward to hearing from you all. So uh, if you haven't joined our group yet, please do. It's a lot of fun in there. And we get to know each other pretty well. So. Yep, if you want to meet us in person. Come on, Nashville and Cincinnati, come, come do it. It'll be fun, guys. We love you all. God we'll, bless. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, Hillbillies, if you guys enjoy what we do here on the show every week and appreciate all the hard work we put into it, consider being one of our Patreon supporters. All you got to do is go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, click on the tab for donations, and you'll see the Patreon link right there. Click on it, and you can go to our Patreon page. Then you will have a decision to make. You can choose the $1, the $3, the $5, or the $10 donation. Each one gets you different things a month. But regardless, you get some free stuff. Just check out the bonuses under each tier and you'll see what you get for free for that month. But you'll get something free regardless. Also, if you'd like to buy any Hillbilly Horror Story merch, you're also in the right place on the website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Just click on the store page and see whatever it is that you like. Click on a few links, send a little bit of money, and your item will be on its way. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We love you. We thank you. And we appreciate you.